everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of December 13th, 2022. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, whatever it is you celebrate. Hope you're having a, a joyous time. Good idea to remind you that in just uh, a few short days, I guess tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, 12 days of the Comic Source kickoff. We've got several episodes already recorded, more to come. A lot of creator interviews, a lot of just random fun holiday stuff. So when you're traveling this year, be sure you take the comic source with you uh, for all your entertainment needs. Uh, that being said, kind of a smaller week of DC Comics, which is totally fine with me. Uh, it's pretty interesting the way these holiday releases go. Like we've pretty much got access to everything through the first week of January in terms of our, our press previews. That's because a lot of people are out of the office, people traveling. So a lot of the December books get finished a little early, which is which is great, which is fine. Um, I just have to try to find time to read them. So we'll see how that all uh, plays out. But um, well, we'll mention I'll mention it when we we get to the a particular book. But there's one book that uh, I got a chance to talk to the creator specifically about the book and the characters in it um, that'll be coming out probably tomorrow or Thursday. So uh, yeah, thought it was a, a solid week. What do you think, Rocky? I thought there was uh, there was uh, there's about maybe three there were there was three that I that I enjoyed a solid yes a solid actually I'll go with I'll even go I'll even say no three no it's three <laughs> I was gonna say four but no I'm just gonna go I'm just gonna say three and there's there's at least oh boy I would say there's three stinkers for me too and the rest were sort of like meh. But, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I really like the shorter, the, the, when we have to review fewer comics, I like when there's like 10 to 11 comics instead of like 15 to 18, like when we're reviewing, it just makes for more enjoyable, uh, reading, but, uh, yeah, but it's, it's interesting. Well, um, I'm be curious to hear your thoughts on some of these. So, yeah, I do notice if you're watching this on YouTube, that, that Riddler book in the background, is that Riddler book out this week? Cause I sure, I didn't see it. And no, I didn't no, read it. Uh, in uh, just for those watching on, uh, yeah, the, the Paul Dano's, uh, he's the writer of the Riddler Year One. I think it's out next week, but the comic book site that I get my thumbnails for for the comic covers, I think they screwed gotcha. up because they had that Riddler for this week, and I think it's next week. So yeah, I, yeah, I screwed up right. and I, I replaced it w with Danger Street. Uh, JC, you were nice enough to uh, correct me that it's Danger Street number one by Tom King and Jose uh, uh, Farnes that's out this week. So yeah. uh, fortunately, yeah. I did read it, so we're good to go. <laughs> okay, well, let's kick it off then. First book, uh, Wildcats number two, written by Matthew Rosenberg, Steven Segovia on art, Elmer Santos does colors, Fern Delgado on letters. Um, yeah, th this one was a little bit of a down issue for me. Uh, some of the ideas are, are interesting, and it certainly seems like in terms of Wildcats under the pen of Matthew Rosenberg, which don't get me wrong, I, I love the characterization he's giving us. But it, it definitely feels more like a, a grifter book, which, again, not a bad thing because we both loved the grifter story he did in Batman Urban Legends. Uh, Zealot, maybe if anyone is a supporting character, everybody else a little bit feels like an afterthought, but it, that might just be because he's building up to something bigger. And we have Jacob Marlowe what, doing what we think is going to be revealing the existence of Wildcats to the greater DC universe. But it turns out he's revealing another even longer standing uh, superhero team in terms of DC, and that's the Seven Soldiers of Victory. But when he shows them, it sure looks like at least a version of the Wildcats with Maul and uh, Voodoo and some of the other characters. So yeah, not sure majestic, what, yes. 
Yep, yep. Not sure what um, what Marlo Jacob Marlowe's playing at, but uh, I I don't know. I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, as far as the art goes from Steven Segovia, he's a great storyteller. It looks like he's trying something a little different with his art. The line work is not quite as clean, and everything kind of has this, I don't know, this filter over it where it it, 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 it so clearly is done digitally. Um, so that that's it's kind of strange. Um, you can definitely see the, the manga influences on his zealot especially. Uh, and again, the storytelling is really strong, but it just looks like everything has kind of this almost a like foggy filter, like some kind of a softening light filter over it. Um, so the line work and the colors don't, the, the colors aren't real vibrant and the line works aren't as sharp as I'm used to seeing uh, from him. So it's going to take a little getting used to the style of art. Um, and again, that might just be, a, he's bringing in a manga influencer. He feels this kind of kinetic style works better for this, this uh, story, but some great covers. Um, I especially loved the, the close-up of the Zealot cover, uh, I, you know, based on how great Zealot looks, her design, and, and how great everybody draws her, I'm sort of surprised that she hasn't caught on a little more. Um, I think it's the Jeff Spokes cover. That She's I'm, gorgeous. I'm yeah. Um, so, again, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised. And, I mean, she's she's got a great character design. She's badass. She's got a sword. Like, why isn't she uh, a little more popular? But, anyway, that Jeff Spokes cover, probably my favorite um, of, of the three that we are four, five, six, how many is it? Too many. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what are your thoughts on, uh, on Wildcats? I, I've been, I enjoyed the first issue and I continue to enjoy it. Uh, I, I will share your sentiment though, that I do think that there's, I think there's maybe too much focus on, on Grifter and even Z. I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to know more about, um, Caitlin Fairchild, uh, her character, uh, even Marlowe's plans in terms of what his plans are with the Seven Soldiers of Victory. That's very interesting. I like the I like the supporting cast. Even Deathblow is back as a woman. And even Grifter's a little uncomfortable because Deathblow's a pretty hot looking black chick now. So he's, <laughs> he's got, you know, now he's fighting alongside his, his former buddy. And Deathblow's back in the body of a woman. And he, of course, he remembers how he died in the past. Or how, she remembers how she, he, she died in the past. And, uh... She, but she, you know, Despo seems to be nonplussed by it, saying, you know, I mean, you know, I, I like how you sacrificed me there in our last mission. So it's, I, I like that. I like the team dynamics here. I got I want to give uh, Rosenberg credit because it, it feels like we're hitting the ground running. I feel like he knows these characters. I wasn't, I wasn't an absolute die-hard Wildcats fan back in the day, but I've read, you know, I, I did actually read there wasn't really a lot to read to catch up on it. And I really, I really like the team. I love the team dynamics. I love the relationship between Grifter and Zealot. Uh, Rosenberg nails that, you know, Zealot can be a real, it's really funny because Zealot is one of those characters. She is a complete B I T C H and a quick shout out to the spawn cover with Zealot in front of spawn. It looks amazing. Uh, but uh, Zealot is a character that's kind of a bitch to a lot of people, and but yet she she clearly has she she cares for Grifter. They they treat each other almost like intentionally badly, but they will die for each other. They're excellent teammates, and that team dynamic really shines through in this issue. 
I really like the art. Uh, you, your your observation. I share your observation that there does seem to be some sort of computer like blurred imagery in the background. I think it works for me. I, this feels like a slightly different comic and yet feels familiar enough that I'm having fun with it. And I'm really curious to see what, I mean, the Seven Soldiers of Victory, I got to admit I'm partial to J, uh, Grant Morrison's so, Seven Soldiers of Victory. I don't, honestly, the only character of these Seven Soldiers that I actually know off the top of my head, I didn't Wikipedia at all. I'm just familiar with the majestic. I'm, I don't. I don't even know the names of the other characters that make up this new Seven Soldiers of Victory at the end. So I'm kind of curious to 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 see how he deals with these characters moving forward, and looking forward to getting to know them. So, uh, but all in all, I I enjoyed this. I I enjoy the humor. I I like how Rosenberg is is doing this, and I like his characterization of Grifter going back to his first six issue run of the Long Con in Batman Urban Legends. Yeah, and again, I think it's he's. He's not just writing wildcats to to write wildcats. You know this this kind of, the t- style of humor, this irreverence that he's using. It does kind of harken back to the way the wildcats comic was back in the day. So, you know, there's a there's precedent for it, I guess you'd say. Um, so you can kind of understand where he's where he's coming from, so to speak. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Up next, we have Batman Incorporated number three. This is from writer Ed Briston. John Timms does the art, Rex Locus on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, Again, quite a few covers, including one that's an homage to, I think it's Detective 38. That's the first appearance of Robin. Kind of like the the in-hook Lee Ghostmaker one. Um, And we got introduced to Phantom One last issue, which he claims to be a former sidekick of Ghostmaker. And, And we find out his origin. We find out, according to him, that Ghostmaker basically left him to die <laughs> at one point. Um, <laughs> That's not surprising. <laughs> you know, it isn't. It isn't. It isn't. Um, yeah. But that is the one thing. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge Ed Brisson fan, and this is enjoyable. But there are some inherent issues, you know, continuity-wise with it. You know, and I guess you could say that about any DC comic these days. But here's the thing, like when, when Tynan first introduced us to Ghostmaker, he showed up in Gotham City and it was told how Ghostmaker had been operating, the, the, how he'd been a part of Bruce Wayne's origin, his becoming Batman, his training around the world, and how there had been an agreement between Ghostmaker and Anton was, uh, you know, the think as an alias, but the name that's used most, most often. Anyway, there's an agreement between Anton and Bruce that they would stay out of each other's city, stay out of each other's way, and fight crime in their own ways. Uh, Ghostmaker using what maybe you could call a more permanent solution to crime because he's willing to kill. But you you kind of hear these stories of this, this guy, this kid who was orphaned because of Ghostmaker. His parents were filthy rich, didn't need the money, but did it simply for the thrills robbed and terrorized rich people, um, stealing their belongings and, and money and whatnot. And Ghostmaker shows up at, during one of their heists and kills them. And as the mother's dying, she's out loud wondering who will take care of her son. And Ghostmaker, completely out of character, for some reason cares that there's a kid. I mean, it's almost worse. Again, this is all according to, to Phantom One. Would have been better off just letting the kid you know, be taken in by somebody else he would have had his parents' money. You would have thought the kid would have been better off. But for whatever reason, his own motivations, it's kind of sold, again, through the words of Phantom 1, that, that Ghostmaker wanted to 
show up Batman. This, this was at the time Batman had taken up Robin. So maybe there was a part of Anton says, oh, Bruce can take, get a sidekick. I can get a sidekick. I can train my sidekick to be better than his sidekick. That whole idea of competition. Remember, this is a guy who lost out on the chance to be Ra's al Ghul's um, protege to Bruce. So, you know, maybe there's still some of that competitiveness uh, still at the core of who Anton is. Feels that he's, he's lesser. Was seen as by other people as lesser than what Bruce was, but in his mind, he's not. So he takes this kid in, but he's a terrible father, um, absentee. This kid is basically just trained to be a weapon and then eventually is allowed to go on missions with Ghostmaker. Uh, Ghostmaker sees him as, again, less um, incapable. And when he gets trapped under some rubble from a building that collapsed, Ghostmaker just leaves him there to die. Again, this is all according to Phantom One. We don't know if this is actually what happened. Um so, I don't know. It's kind of weird because, again, if you want to get into continuity when you're hearing Phantom One talk about him and Ghostmaker being out of these missions, they seem very public and out, you know, in, in consciousness that Batman would have heard of this before then. But when Ghostmaker first showed up, we, I remember Tynan specifically saying, oh, he's operated behind the scenes. He's very secretive. Nobody knows he exists. Well, how does that – that doesn't really make sense with what we see here with – Ghostmaker and Phantom One fighting villains out in the public where everybody can see and there's big explosions, obviously would have news coverage and whatnot. So again, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe I should just set that aside. Just take it for face value. I don't know that we can take what Phantom One is saying for face value. It, I can sort of see it, right? Like this seems like behavior that Ghostmaker would, um, would engage in, you know, would on a whim pick up a ward train him and then forget about him, abandon him. But at the same time, it doesn't exactly dovetail in with the ghost maker that we have now, who's willing to not kill, who's willing to be the head of Batman incorporated. Like there's a little inconsistency here, right? Like which, which characterization of ghost maker are we supposed to believe? If you recall Rocky, we had those backups in the Batman comic when, um, when Tynan was writing it where Ghostmaker yeah. went to the Island and he was fighting and he was certainly more devil may care and kind of whimsical. And you would think that if that's his true characterization, he never in a million years would have picked up a ward. Um, and, and if he did, he, he would have forgot about it, you know, the next day or the next week. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm just not sure. I, I have a feeling like, okay, Tynan created this character, didn't have him fully fleshed out. I don't know that DC knows what to do with them. Like, do they still do character Bibles? Like is if somebody picks up a book and they're writing a new character, they're not familiar with, it doesn't have decades of continuity or decades of characterization. Do they know how he'd really act? So I wonder about that. I like Ghostmaker visually. Um, but I would say, I don't know if I like him character wise, because this is a very different take. What we're, what Ed Brisson is doing versus what we've seen in the past versus the character that Phantom one describes. So, Again, Phantom One may just be lying. He may never have been the sidekick or his view just might be skewed. That's yet to be determined, but it it's a little problematic um, because it pulls me out of the story a little bit. But in terms of the, this actual issue, other than getting that origin of um, of Phantom One, according to, uh, to his own words, we don't really get a lot else that happens in this, in this issue. Um, there's just, we get, we sort of spin around the globe. We know members of Batman Incorporated are at various places around the world. So we kind of check in on each of them. And there's, there's some differences of opinion between the different members of Batman Incorporated 
about Ghostmaker himself, whether they should be following him. Some of them say, well, Batman put him in charge. Others are like, but he's a killer. So that seems all to be coming to a, to a head. So I don't know. Maybe this is the book where ultimately we'll get a, a consistent characterization and understand who Ghostmaker is. Uh, I kind of think we need that if Ghostmaker is going to be a, a regular of the Batman family. If he's going to show up randomly here or there, it's kind of probably not necessary to have sort of a consistent characterization because he's only going to show up sporadically. So let whatever writer is pulling him into his book, you know, write them as they need to have him sort of suit the needs of their story. As long as it's, you know, within a, a defined parameter, it can't be wildly different. Like he's complete villain in one and goody two shoes in the other, but you have a little more leeway, but if he's going to be leading this book, yeah, we need some consistent characterization and I, I get the whole, Oh, we want him to be super mysterious or whatever. Like that worked for the longest time with Wolverine. I feel like that's an old tired trope at this point. I want to know who, who the characters are that I'm reading about. Otherwise I, I'm not going to care. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, I started liking Ghostmaker because I loved the visual that Jorge Jimenez came up with. But if you can't give me some relatability to the character and some stability to the character's characterization, I'm not going to be able to relate to him. And then I'm not going to care and I'm not going to want to read. You know, that's sort of that's sort of why I'm not a big big Harley fan. Like I, I have no in to her. You know, her characterization, while you could say is consistent, it's it's not a character that I relate to. I'm not a woman. I'm not insane. I'm not zany. I don't love the Joker. Where's my touchstone for for Harley? So, uh, anyway, what do you think of this Batman Incorporated? Uh, I think that there's still there's there's way too many characters in this comic, and I, I share your sentiment that we need more. There's some very interesting questions about the history of Ghostmaker here. This is this is interesting. I, I want to know. I want to know more about Ghostmaker. Tinian was successful in getting me interested in the character. Not everybody shares my shared my optimism for Ghostmaker, but this is the opportunity to get people that were unsure about Ghostmaker into the character. And it's hard to do that when you've got so many other characters, which I view are, is almost superfluous. We don't need so many Bat people in Batman Incorporated in this early stage. Why? We don't need it. It only muddies the waters and, you know, going off around the globe trying to make the point that various te former teachers of Ghostmaker and Bruce Wayne are being killed. You don't need to have five or six of them all over the globe. You can just need one or two and make your point from a narrative perspective and focus more time on, on Ghostmaker. Now, having said that, I, I will say that uh, I do believe, and you, you, you hinted at this as a possibility, that, that Phantom One is telling the story of his origin. Phantom One is probably an unreliable narrator. It's sort of like when, we, when, when Jason Todd originally returned, he had a very interesting and different perspective on his death than Batman did. You know, like his perspective was, why, why didn't you kill the Joker? I mean, he killed me and you never killed him. I mean, it, it was it was interesting to, to get that other perspective. We're just getting to know Phantom One here, but we know Phantom One, you know, isn't he does have a code of honor similar to Ghostmaker. He doesn't randomly kill Clown, uh, Clown Hunter. He wants to, I think out of almost like revenge, he wants Clown Hunter to come on his side. What better revenge can, can Phantom One have against his former mentor than to take the new Phantom One or this Clown Hunter and get, bring him on his side and have Clown Hunter help him kill Ghostmaker? I mean, it's sort of like a, it's, it's the ultimate revenge that you can have on a mentor, stealing one of their students and then perhaps destroying them. And that's what Phantom One is essentially trying to do here. Meanwhile, around the globe, we got all these other characters, which I'm going to, 
I'm still struggling with, with all their names. I can't even name them all because I forget. I, I literally have to look at my notes from the first two issues. There's just so many of them. It's not that they're not interesting, but there's just too many of them and unnecessarily so. But I'm still intrigued by Ghostmaker. I'm still intrigued with Phantom One. I, I really like the cover. I, I think uh, from a symbolic and historical standpoint, it's a nice homage cover with, uh, with uh, you know, Phantom One jumping through the, the circle there and that... It, as an homage to that classic Batman and Robin cover. And I'm still on board with this and I'm going to, I'm going to give Ed Brisson at least the first six issues and see if uh, he can nail the landing on this. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, Batman incorporated was a huge group, so I get wanting to have a lot of characters, but I, yeah, I wouldn't have minded if they brought him in a little at a time instead of throwing us, you know, everybody at once. I wonder if people, I mean, you've read the Morrison Batman run, right? You read Batman Incorporated back in the day, and these aren't yeah. all new characters. And even you're ha having trouble, you know, keeping them all straight. I never yeah. even read that stuff. So you can imagine, I, I know there's Batman of China. That's about the only one I can remember, <laughs> to be honest with you. So only yeah. because his name is so ridiculous whenever they say it's like Batman hyphen of hyphen China. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Up next, we have, I guess we'll briefly talk about this. It's Harley Quinn Uncovered, number one. This is a new thing DC's doing, I guess. It's basically a book of Harley Quinn variant covers um, <laughs> from like the last year. So if you're a huge Harley Quinn fan, like this is fantastic. At the same time, if you spent money on some of these 1 in 25, 1 in 50 variants, <laughs> I wonder like how would I feel if – oh. I could have just paid, I don't know what this is, $6.99, $7.99, and got all of the covers as opposed to I paid, you know, 50 bucks for, you know, whichever cover if it, if it would bother you. It probably wouldn't bother me, but then again, I wasn't buying all these Harley covers. But some of them are great. I mean, uh, the Adam Hughes, the, the, the Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven homage is fantastic. Um, when I was flipping through looking at these, what's clear to me is Derek Chu's done more uh, Harley Quinn covers, variant Harley Quinn covers than anybody these days. Uh, I'm not the biggest style, uh, a fan of his style because uh, it's so clearly digitally painted and I, it feels kind of overly produced in a way. Um, yeah. But again, if you're a Harley Quinn fan uh, and you weren't able to pick up these covers, here's a way to do it pretty cheaply. So uh, I imagine you'll be picking this up, Rocky. Well, actually, I don't know if I will. I mean, I guess I might. I mean, I joke about, I mean, I, I, I bitch whine and complain about too many damn variant covers all the time. But like the, you know, there's always an element of hypocrisy when you're a comic collector because it's impossible to avoid being a little bit of a hypocrite because, uh, you know, there's so many covers. Naturally, I'm going to buy, uh, you can't avoid buying your occasional variant cover here and there. And it is really nice to see all these. I like the fact that they're all uh, into one comic. It is my it is really truly unfortunate that some of these amazing covers they will never ever see the vast vast 95 percent 98 percent of comic collectors will never ever ever own these covers because they're either retail variants or they're uh, one in 25 ratio variants and most people like i don't buy i'm a, I'm a seasoned collector and i've got the disposable income i don't i don't i'm not going to spend 25 50 on a cover i i do okay once in a blue moon but i don't do it on a regular basis uh very very semi-regularly so it's nice to see these once in a while uh you know come out to so at least you know 
we can all enjoy, especially on some of the one in 50, one in 25 and retailer variants. So I'm glad they're doing this. My personal favorite is the Catwoman homage to the Catwoman cover with Harley Quinn holding up the mighty taco uh, in the police lineup. That's that's my personal favorite, followed by another Adam Hughes. I mean, Adam Hughes, man, he's just uh, I guess I'm old school, but I'm probably as old as Adam Hughes. So in any event, I, I quite. It, it, it's decent. It's, it's not bad. You know what? I'm talking myself into buying this. I, I should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way about variants. I've probably in the last year bought more variant covers than ever before just because I get sucked in when I'm like watching my LCS do their weekly YouTube stream. I'm like, oh, that's a great cover. And I go ahead and grab it. And it's like, man, I'm buying the regular issue already. If you're buying the regular issue already, I feel like I certainly don't need to buy a second copy where the only difference is the cover. If I like the cover, like I should just, you know, grab a digital capture, you know, of the cover and I can look at it digitally whenever I want, um, which I don't know, maybe that's piracy or something. I don't know. But I, I yeah, I mean, I'm so limited on space. I definitely don't need to be buying multiple. So a lot of times, sometimes I only get the variant. But again, yeah, I the other part is I agree with you that I think having all these variants is actually bad or cannibalized. It's like. The readership is smaller and smaller, so you're expecting them to keep supporting the industry by spending more and more when you should be attracting new readers. That's one of the things I like about Bad Idea, that only one cover per book. I, I really wish – like if these covers are that great, like Derek Chu covers or Adam Hughes or whatever, then just make that the main cover and be done with it. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So especially, yeah, getting into the ratios, I think it's, it's predatory. But anyway, it's there, everybody. Uh, Harley Quinn uncovered. I like the idea. I hope they do it for, for others. Um, in fact, I would be a big fan of DC putting out like a once, once a year hardcover. Here's every cover, 50 bucks. Here's every cover that yeah. we've made this year or every, just do every variant. if you Or want. even, even uh, have a round Robin, have a vote. Let the fans vote for the top 100 covers or top 50 covers and, and put that in a hardcover the following year or something, yeah. you know, or, or, tra- or a trade. Yeah. Something, something yeah. like that. So, yeah. Uh, I loved it when they did the the hardcover collections of the 1000 issue for Detective Comics and for Action Comics. They put all the covers, including all the retailer variants, because it's like I wanted to collect all the covers for Action Comics 1000, even the retailer variants. But <laughs> some of these some of these retailer exclusives, they're like shops around the world. I know. like You know, and it's like, OK, I want to get this cover and it's from a shop in Australia. So not only am I paying 25 bucks for the cover, I'm paying another $40 for shipping. It's a new, it's a brand new book. It's Action Comic 1000. I have 15 copies of it. The only difference is this one has a different cover and I'm paying 75 bucks. Crazy, I know. Yeah. So it was great. I mean, that, that, I actually didn't pay 75 bucks because Action Comics 1000, there was a King's Comics. That's a real big retailer in Australia. They were at New York Comic Con that year and had their variant. So I, was able to pick it up without paying all that extra money. It was just 25 bucks and I have to pay for the shipping. Um, but again, action comics, detective comics, they collected them all in the trade. And I, I appreciate that. Cause the other part is it's a lot easier to look at these covers. You know, if I want to look at all 25 covers of action comics, what am I going to go through my long box and pull out each one to look at it as opposed to opening the hardcover and being able to flip through. So anyway, way way, way more talk about covers than you guys probably wanted to hear. So let's move on. Batman Spawn number one, uh, which I guess technically a volume two, because back in the day there was a crossover. There was Batman Spawn and there was Spawn Batman. Again, this is Batman Spawn. 
And back in the day, so Batman Spawn was the one that DC put out. And then there was a Spawn Batman. And Batman Spawn, the villain, if I'm not mistaken, was the Joker. And then Spawn Batman, the villain Batman and Spawn went, went up against was the clown. Um, so here it's DC is listed as the first publisher. So maybe that's why it's Batman Spawn. Uh, anyway, written by Todd McFarlane, creator of Spawn. Pencils by Greg Capullo, longtime Spawn and Batman artist, probably the two properties he's most known for. He's inked by Todd McFarlane, so that's kind of the old school Spawn um, art team there, along with colors by Dave McCaig, and then letters by Tom Napolitano that lettered, I think he's lettered just about every issue of Spawn uh, since since it started. Um but this is clearly a Todd. We Rocky and I were talking about this before we started recording. Clearly written by Todd McFarlane, throws you in the deep end of the pool, assumes that you know who Batman is, assumes that you know who Spawn is. Not not just that you're aware of them, but you're 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 fans of these characters. You know a little bit of their their history and their backstory. So if you don't know anything about Spawn, you may feel a little bit lost here. Now that being said, you don't necessarily need to know anything about Batman or Spawn to read this and enjoy it. There's a level of um, kind of surface action and interaction between Spawn and Batman that just work, whether you know anything about them or not. The more you know about, especially Spawn, the more you're going to get out of this. I do feel like the connection between Spawn and Batman is, that McFarlane tries to establish here, the commonality, supposedly Wanda, Spawn's wife, which is the, was the whole motivation for Al Simmons coming back from the dead. Um, Wanda Blake, his wife, was killed on the same night that Bruce Wayne's parents were killed, which that that timeline doesn't line up at all. But at least McFarland does try to give some lip service to, hey, this is a different universe, different part of the multiverse. Uh, it's possible the Court of Owls, kind of the main villains here, have access to some technology that allowed them to kind of skew the timeline to make these match up. And um, and so it works on that level. But Ultimately, the reason I feel like the reason this book exists, it, it feels, first of all, a little bit like a money grab. You put Batman, you put Spawn, you put McFarlane, you put Capullo, you put all those four words together, and you probably got a book where, yeah, you're, it's going to sell really, really well. But in terms of just, hey, is this a great comic? Story-wise, it's kind of weak in my mind, technically. Um, it, you know, this isn't like groundbreaking, award-winning writing, and... I've certainly seen McFarlane do a lot better on his own book. But again, this is a one shot and you're mashing up two characters that don't normally interact. So it's a tougher challenge. Plus you're trying to do it all in a one shot as opposed to um, a mini series. So again, that, that makes it harder. And let's face it, McFarlane is, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't make his living writing. You know, he's not, I think if McFarlane had concentrated on writing, he could be a very, very good writer. I mean, he's not going to, you know, replace Alan Moore or anything like that or, or Grant Morrison, but he could hold his own, but that's just not where his you know interests lie. He's more a businessman these days. Is his art spectacular? Yeah, he can still draw pretty well, but again, not as good as if he kept doing it. But he's focusing on growing his business and you know getting Spawn out there and whatever, and and he's been very successful at that. So you know I will forgive him for not being the, the world's best writer. But where this book shines is Capullo. I give McFarland again great business decision, all the credit in the, the world for recruiting Greg to. Uh, team back up with him and draw some Spawn and draw some Batman. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what people are looking for. Let me see some fantastic art. And if the book is weak a little bit narratively in terms of storytelling, it's very strong visually in terms of storytelling. 
Um, and I'll give Dave McCaig a lot of credit as well for uh, the colors. It's a bit of a, a darker palette, a muted palette, and it certainly works. Um, and there's plenty of big, big images, big splash pages with a lot of shadow and a lot of green glowing um, necroplasmic energy from Spawn. Um, you know, Court of Owls, as I mentioned, kind of the big bad. Greg Capullo is the first artist that originated those, um, the, the Court of Owls as a, as a concept and as a team. And Talons as well on his uh, classic run on Batman with, uh, with Scott Snyder. So there are things about this that really work. There are things that are a little weaker. Um, ultimately, if you're a Spawn fan, if you're a Batman fan, I think it, this works. Um, so that remains to be seen how, how well it sells. I, I think, like I said, it's going to sell really, really well. And I couldn't begin to talk about which cover is the best. There, there are so many covers here. Um, it's just, it's ridiculous. So uh, anyway, what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think I'm counting fourteen. I th- I'm counting fifteen covers that we got as preview copies, and some of them, two, three of them are black and white. And so, uh, yeah, there's lots. There's gorgeous covers, which I, I've shown. I sh- I showed to the YouTube crowd here as we were you were talking. I, I, I actually really enjoyed this. This is one of my favorites of the week. I thought this was, I thought this was the way one shots should be told. I thought this was entertaining. I thought this was, we know this is in an alternate universe. We know that, you know, there, it, it's odd. I never really thought about how much there was a similarity between Batman's origins and Spawn's. Uh, and, and Todd McFarlane, in his particular style, he makes it very clear. He spells out the plot. You and I, when we reviewed the, you know, 25 days or the, whatever, the 12 days of Spawn-ness last year, uh, one, one thing that Todd McFarlane uh, quite does, he does have a tendency for over-exposition, but his exposition here wasn't as bad as it was when he began writing Spawn. But, and he spells out the plot here. It's easy to follow. Basically, the uh, uh, they want to... Uh, Spawn is not the only monster that was created uh, by the powers that be. It was also was Batman. And, and on the same day, June 26th, the day that Wanda died. Okay, that's not the real origin of Spawn, but then the, the day that, that Martha Wayne died. Now, obviously, the origins of Batman here are being tweaked. And and or and same with spawns, but it works, and it's easy to see how it's different because the story is, I think, that well told and that straightforward. And the court of owls is involved as well, and it all focuses on a pearl. And in one of these pearls, because uh, when when Martha Wayne was killed in that alley, uh, what, her pearls went missing. Well, Batman discovers what happened to those pearls and why those pearls are so significant, because one of those pearls holds a portal to the cosmos. And the violator is involved here, and the violator is uh, is has made some particular deal with uh, the Joker, and I got to give Craig Capullo a lot of credit. The way he draws the Joker here, it's the Scott Snyder version of the Joker with the skin ripped off, and it just looks incredible. I mean, the, the visuals here really are fantastic. I I love the use of the Court of Owls. I love the use of uh, the, the talons. Uh, I love the I love the way that that Tard McFarlane scripted the choreo the, the choreographed the fight scenes. How can Batman stand up to Spawn? Well, the answer is he can't. Not when Spawn is in his demon form and is utilizing his full powers. A powered up Spawn could easily destroy Batman, and that's made very clear. But they, of course, they incorporate the use of the dead zones. Dead zones being those particular areas in, in a city or on the planet 
uh, dead zones where demons don't have their power. So got people like Spawn and the Supernatural, they 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 are they don't have all of their full power. And so that makes puts Batman on the level playing field with Spawn. And so that leads to a lot of great dialogue, the cockiness between Batman and Spawn. You can imagine it's in here. Uh, just really great art, great interaction. I I enjoyed this. Now there's there's some over the top craziness here and there, and uh, it's you know I think the degree to which people will get into the story will be the the degree to which they're prepared to detach themselves from the a perfect synchronicity with existing Spawn mythology and 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 what you what we all think we know about Batman. Just read this, enjoy the visuals, enjoy the pick your favorite cover because God knows there's a lot of them and just and just have a lot of fun reading it because there's a lot of fun to be had here. And and it it clearly ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. It ends, the major plot point ends, but a hint that the Violator and the Joker aren't quite finished yet. So there's a, you know, I'm sure they're going to have a, there's going to be a second chapter of this coming out. So uh, I was, I was impressed. Yeah, I would agree with that. I definitely expect kind of more. They, they hint that, yeah, there might be more to, more to come um, from the story. So I don't know, maybe based on the, um, the sales, they might, they might do a follow-up. Who knows? Uh, all right. Up next, we have I Am Batman, number 16, from writer John Ridley. Christian Doucet's The Artist, Rex Locust on Colors, Troy Petrie on Letters. I'm not going to talk for very long about this. It, it's called Motherless Child, Part 1. There's a giant bombshell. Uh, a credit to John Ridley. You know, he does come from film and TV in terms of, uh, you know, his his experience as a writer. Uh, certainly, you get used to doing doing the cliffhanger, dropping the bombshell, like at the absolute last moment. So it's the last panel of the last page of this book where, uh, who he thinks is who Jace Fox thinks is his mother says, but I am not your mother. That's, that's her last line. That's the last line of dialogue in the book. Jace, I second, to last panel, Jace, I love you. I always have, and I always will last panel, but I'm not your mother. Uh, so Lucius was clearly, uh, you know, having some, sowing some wild oats, perhaps, uh, <laughs> fairly cheated on, uh, God, what's her name? Is it, I can't think of her name right now. I can't remember the name. I, you know what? I was funny. I was, you know, I was, I, was, I actually think that's a fault of the writing. I've never been able to remember her name. Is it, is it Tanya? Uh, or is that, no, that's, well, there's Tiffany, no, that's, Tammy. Yeah. There's Tammy Fox, Tiffany Fox, or the yeah, daughter. I want to say it was. I want to say it was Terry. Terry, maybe. Yeah. Terry, I don't know. Anyway, the 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 Fox family matron is not Jace Tim, whatever you want to call him. Uh, not not the mother of of Jace Fox. So, you know, I, I oftentimes, again, without having seen it, and I know I shouldn't do that. I've never seen Empire on the the Fox Television Network, um, but based on the fact that that's you know, a, a powerful African-American family that has like this media empire, not so different from the Fox family here in Batman comics that have a technology empire being the fact that they're in control of Wayne enterprises. Um, and it's a bit soap opera E, you know, the, I, I imagine this is what empire is like with a lot of, you know, backstabbing and betrayal and sibling rivalry and what have you. And, here we go, right? Like, what What else? Like, why wouldn't you expect that? I'm making that comparison. What else would I expect? But, yeah, it turns out Lucius Fox cheated on uh, on his wife, and Jace Fox is illegitimate. 
So, you know, Motherless Child, as I said, is the, uh, the name of the arc and how this is all going to play out, how it's going to affect Jace. Like, the guy's already got tons of trauma from accidentally killing whoever it was back in the day. Um, so, yeah, pretty interesting. And I would say the main cover, you take a look at that main cover and uh, they're all sitting around the table. They're all looking down and dramatically and it's moody and yeah i guess we'll see how it all plays out but uh in terms of of what else goes on in the story because that kind of overshadows everything to be honest it's just um there's some people going around killing others or kidnapping others who appear to be in some way related to the fox family and their business dealings Uh, and they're talking about the truth needs to come out and very cryptic messages and Fox family has a ton of secrets and yeah. So the, the, as I said, the soap opera feel of the Fox family continues. So we'll see how it all plays out. But I mean, credit to John Ridley. He, he did pace it out. Well, when that bombshell, you can sort of see it coming before you get to that last line, but you really don't see it coming or I didn't see it coming until maybe the next to last or last page. And he builds up the drama to it. Well, then he drops that and all I can, like it was impactful. It was emotional. I was like, Oh crap that's going to really throw things for Jace Fox into, uh, into turmoil. So we'll see how that all plays out, but give us your thoughts while I look up Lucius Fox wife's name. Uh, yeah, I, there was a lot to unpack in this issue. I thought, I actually thought this was a well done issue. Uh, this is, this is this issue. I am Batman issue 16. The everything from the cover to the contents encapsulates the essence of Jace Fox. Yeah, his wife, sorry, his wife is named Tanya. Tanya? And he's got okay. a daughter named Tam, and Tim, Tiffany. who became Jace. Um, Tiffany and... And then Luke, and Tiffany and Luke. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, as as the table, this this table with all the Fox family sitting around this table with Jace Fox on the end of it, it reminds me of, uh, there's a couple of images of the Bat family, of, of, of all the, the Batman, I, the traditional like Bruce Wayne and, and Barbara Gordon. And it reminds me of some of, some of the uh, old covers from Death in the Family. Where they're, they're all sitting around the table there. I really, really like this cover because this encapsulates what John Ridley has been trying to do from the beginning uh, with with mixed success, it's and when I say mixed success, I mean by because different different readers feel differently about it. I think that Ridley started off in a very choppy manner from Future State onward, but he's gotten con- progressively better at developing these characters. Where actually, I do I find myself caring about what's happening to the Fox family. I I do feel uh, that it is well paced, that the story is well told. Uh, I feel for, for for Tiffany. Tiffany finds out. Uh, Tiffany reveals to Chase that she knows that he's Batman. Chase reveals to her that he suspects that she's the vigilante that's been running around. Chase uh, Fox confesses his love for Hadia, his love interest, uh, going back to the days of Gotham City. So there, there's that. So and of course, she, Hadia is not ready to confront her feelings for Jace Fox. So there's that, there's that relationship aspect, and 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 which which adds to the adds to the emotions of of the and the characters and the character arcs of the various uh, people involved. And then we got we, we got all of this is within the purview of of the idea that you never know. You never know when your time is up until you do. Random crime happens all the time, and it always happens to somebody else until it happens to you. And John really does a good job of 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 showing the emotional. Uh, there, there's one particular page that uh, I just thought was really good. It was it was very uh, might be very difficult for some people to watch who've gone through trauma, but watching a uh, you know 
sort of like a glorified postal worker going insane and killing all his coworkers and and this woman realizing she's going to die and tears streaming down her face and and the trauma she goes through as he as the guy points the gun at her head and it and it clicks and she ends up surviving and he ends up being stopped by Batman but you know the the emotion the emotionality of that moment I thought really shone through and then when you get to the point where there's a where when Jace Fox realizes or the foxes realize that maybe these these random shootings are all connected and maybe it has something to do maybe somebody else other than his Tiffany uh, and his own family maybe somebody else knows knows his secret and is just targeting these very very specifically uh, doing these random acts of violence to target the foxes in some way while the foxes are going through their own family problems and it's very ironic at the end that somebody has kidnapped Jace Fox's mother but Jay, Jay says what do you mean my mother's she's you're right there but that's when she realized that's when that's when they break the news to him well actually it's, that's not Tanya's not really your mom it's so which means that the person the, the woman that was kidnapped is actually Jace Fox's mother and so now I'm wondering as a reader have we readers met the mother, his mother before? Has she been a previous character we've been introduced to and I've, I haven't been paying enough attention to know? So I actually think this is uh, well done. If, you, if you've if you been a fan of Jace Fox and been a fan of this series so far, I do think this is one of the better issues and uh, that I've, uh, since since the arc began, I think this is this is my one of my favorite issues of I Am Batman since the run began. And I'm going to be saying that about another comic we're going to be reviewing this week. That starts with a B. But uh, we'll get to that. Start to the B. Huh. B. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah, I yeah. We can, we'll talk about that for sure. Uh, all right. Up next, speaking of outstanding comics, Dark Crisis, Big Bang, from writer Mark Wade, Dan Jurgens, and Norm Ratman on art, Federico Blee on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. I'll talk a little bit about the art first. I saw Dan Jurgens, Norm Ratman. I was all excited, and I got to the first couple pages, and I was like, that doesn't even look to me like. Dan Jurgens art, especially the the splash page, just felt very static to me. Um, but then, a, as the uh, as the issue went on, probably by about page three, I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, I see it now." Yeah, that's Dan Jurgens art. Harkens back to a certain era of Superman for me. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, is, is this necessary in terms of being related to Dark Crisis? Uh, probably not. Um, but it's Mark Wade, and it, once again, it's showing that Mark Wade is an outstanding writer in terms of being able to, to take what's going on, to take what Josh Williamson's been doing in Dark Crisis, and we know that that, that event itself has kind of inherently has its problems continuity-wise and you know story-wise, structurally-wise, technically. Uh, we've talked about those a lot. Um, but that being said, Mark Wade is making the best out of the, the situation here, and, and people that are big continuity nerds, big multiverse nerds of the, uh, of the DC universe, you're going to get a lot out of this because it's basically a story of Barry Allen explaining to Wallace West who the anti-monitor is and how the anti-monitor, they need to make sure he's kind of off the, the playing field, so to speak, so that uh, what's going on in Dark Crisis isn't hijacked by, by the anti-monitor. At least that's kind of how I took it. So he explains how he died, stopping the anti-monitor's uh, anti-matter cannon back in the day in, uh, I guess it was Christ on Infinite Earth number eight. And then they go looking for the anti-monitor to know where he is with uh, Barry telling Wallace, now we can't engage, we can't fight him, he's too powerful for us to take on, 
Um, we just have to locate him and then we'll call for backup. And unfortunately, when they do locate him, Anti-Monitor manages to grab Wallace. And so Barry has no choice but to fight him. And it's a pretty interesting concept that Mark Wade comes up with. Um, and it's a, it's a concept that exists in, in theoretical physics. And it's why supposedly you can't have ships that travel faster than light speed because as an object approaches light speed, its mass increases toward infinity. And supposedly if you ever reach light speed, the object would be so heavy that it couldn't actually move. So it's like this paradox, but flash can get really, really close. Right. So he like slingshots himself by running around the world and using the, whatever particular earth he's on gravity to build his mass up where he's almost at infinite mass and almost at the speed of light so that he can pack a lot of power into one punch. Now, how his bones don't break and all that kind of stuff, you got to kind of set that aside. But it's a great concept for Mark Wade, and it makes for some fantastic imagery when he finally gets to punch the anti-monitor with all this energy built up behind it. So as he punches the anti-monitor, the punch is so powerful that it, it hurls the anti-monitor through all these different Earths, all these different parts of the multiverse. And so it gives the uh, the artist, the, the, the art team of Jurgens and Ratman a chance to show all these different Earths. Some we've seen, some we have not, you know, whether it's Earth 18 or Earth 43 or Earth 9 or Earth 162, Earth 66, you know, who uh, the, people might recognize that one as the, the Batman 1966 TV show. But it gives a chance for the uh, Antimonitor to go flying through all these different Earths and us to, to get a glimpse into what the these Earths of the infinite multiverse um, be reminded of what they are. And what's even better is in the back of the book, there's a, literally a list that starts at Earth zero and goes up to Earth 2020. And it tells you what each of these Earths are. Like Earth 29 is the backward bizarro verse. Earth 28 is the heroes fight using mechanized war suits. And when it's specific Earths that we've seen before, like heroes fighting using mechanized war suits, well, that happens in the DC Mech series. So that is annotated there. So again, it's it's something that I think a lot of you know big DC fans, DC fans from you know a long time ago, and some of this information is is pulled from um, Grant Morrison's Multiversity when there were only fifty two Earths, um, and some of these numbers will line up. Some of them are, are new. Um, like I didn't know earth 96 is where the superhero DC superhero girls, that cartoon, uh, version of the, the characters live earth 35 is the super Americans. So there's, there's just a lot here and it goes back to kind of the, um, the multiversal aspect of, um, of DC comics. And uh, again, I think for, for big DC fans, they're really going to enjoy this and, uh, it's sort of a roadmap, so to speak. So, yes, it sort of has its roots in Dark Crisis, but I would argue that if you're not reading Dark Crisis or you tried Dark Crisis and didn't like it or, or what have you uh, and you don't want to have anything to do with Dark Crisis, that's fine. I still feel like you should buy this because it stands alone as, a, as just a fun story on its own. But more than that, the, the knowledge here, you can like use it as a, a reference, um, almost like a, a multiversal who's who, so to speak. Um, so I would recommend picking it up. Um, I will say that there's a lot of covers this week for these, whatever, six, seven books we're talking about. This is probably the weakest oh, selection of covers. These covers are not very, very good. They are even, the, 
Yeah, even the Mikel Yanin cover, yeah. which I, you know, normally I'm a big fan of Mikel Yanin. Um, even that one was kind of, uh, so, um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of the kind of out of continuity stuff that we've been reading lately, whether it's Jurassic League or Tom Taylor's Dark Knights of Steel, all those get their own Earth number assigned to them. So again, I think this is a good, um, this is a good reference, if nothing else, so. What do you think? I mean, you're a big Mark Wade fan. You probably really enjoyed this, right? Uh, well, I'm a big Mark Wade fan. Uh, yes, and he does he does a job here. I, but bare minimum, in my mind, just he does he does the bare job of of and and that's all he needed to do because that's all you can do with the abortion called Dark Crisis. And Mark Wade basically just uh, did. I I I like the way Multiversity did it better. Uh, with the individual pages, with the explaining in detail each of the 52 Earths. This, you know, three Earths slapped on each individual page. I'm not a big fan of the Dan Jurgens art. I got to tell you, it doesn't really work for me, the Dan Jurgens and the Norma Ponder art. It just, it just feels a little bit too, this feels I'm, just a little, it just doesn't work for me. I, I, I don't know. I would have, uh, maybe I'm missing the George Perez or the Ivan Reese kind of style of art. I think this was just, it just, this, this doesn't really work for me. Having said that, I'm actually... I'm optimistic because this is a good reference point. So I agree with you. So uh, you don't need to, this doesn't make any sense. I know how Dark Crisis ends. So do you, I'm sure. Uh, it doesn't get any better. This this has nothing to do with Dark Crisis for all intents and purposes. Anti-Monitor should have been in Dark Crisis. He never was. Where was he? Apparently he's not that important. Apparently the Anti-Monitor, I will give Mark Wade credit for this. Where I find it interesting about what the what Barry Allen says about the anti monitor here is that he basically says the anti monitor is he's somewhere in the infinite earths and he's destroying universes because that's what the anti monitor does and he's virtually indestructible. So that tells me in my head I'm thinking he's like DC's Galactus. The anti monitor is DC's new Galactus, whereas the Galactus was Galactus for Marvel is the devourer of worlds. The anti-monitor now is the devourer of universes and the anti-monitor will go from reality to reality, from earth to earth, to each individual earth to destroy it. That's the anti-monitor's goal. He's like the, the Galactus of the DC universe. And that's interesting for potential future stories. And that's that's what I like about it. Uh, there are so many interesting earths here. Uh, and they're all, you know, uh, Mark Wade is very good. He knows a lot about DC lore, a lot about the Silver Age, Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age of DC Comics. And one of the things that stands out is that there are so many very interesting and cool stories that in DC's past that goes beyond just like Superman, Red Sun and and, and all these other Earths. And we, we now we've got DC superhero girls and what have you. It's... The, the one criticism I have, though, that DC has always utterly, in my mind, practically failed miserably at is since the original crisis, we have so rarely seen adventures on alternate Earths. We see it. We don't see it enough. And, you know, instead of going instead of twisting characters and writing, writing various characters out of character. Just tell a story of that character on a different Earth. There's no need to stay on them on Earth Zero all the time. And that's what, you know, so if you're going to have all these infinite number of Earths and you're going to go to all this trouble because we've got everything from Earth 1996 with the amalgamated heroes, which requires further uh, 
investigation, the, the Marvel DC uh, team-ups from 96 and Earth 216, home of Superman Jr. and Batman Jr. from World's Finest, number 215. I mean, this, these, are, these references are obscure, but yet interesting. This is the stuff that I want to see stories written about moving forward. But, but do it. If you're going to tease us with this, Actually do something with it. I hope this isn't just lip service about, oh, well, look at all these cool new Earths we have. So they rattle off Earths 1 through 52 again. We already kind of knew those. Uh, and then they just randomly pick a bunch of numbers between 53 and 2020 and just, you know, you know, assign something to them of some comic book that I'm sure Mark Wade liked. I mean, I get it. It's it's kind of fun and silver agey and, and, and it's kind of cool. On the other hand, unless you're going to do something with it, Kind of, you know, I hope this isn't just like words because let's face it, we never got anything out of multiversity. It was a cool concept, but how many adventures did we really get other than Justice League Incarnate uh, with with adventures of all the, the Earths in the year 52? So I, I I will give compliments here in terms of the, the adventure. This was very... This was very uh, by the numbers. Uh, it was just Barry and Wallace West traveling through the various universes, beating up the Anti-Monitor and having the help of various heroes. And and so in that respect, it's good. I, I do feel, though, that this is the type of story that had it actually had a substantive plot behind it. This is what I would have much preferred to Dark Crisis. Have one with all these multiverses. That's what I thought Dark Crisis was going to be. Give us an anti-monitor, a devourer of universes, devouring things like a Galactus-like villain. Instead, we got Dark Crisis. So, uh, And also, kudos to the name Big Bang. I kind of like that. Big Bang signifying the, the births of something new. I kind of like the name and the title to it. And I got to insult the covers here. Sorry, but Mikhail Janin was by far the best cover. But, you know, we're dealing with the multiverse here. And these are, these have got to be some of the most unattractive covers I've ever seen. What the hell? Wonder Woman, Amazonia, standing in front of a character that I don't think anybody I know can name. <laughs> and then we got another cover with Red Sun hitting Magog. Like what? And then we have, I think, a Joker Hems helper from Batman 89 standing beside I think that's supposed to be a DC superhero girl, except it's it's not drawn properly. So I don't know. Uh, it's in any event, it's just disappointing on the covers here. A lot of lost opportunities. I actually feel that other than the story here, I feel that in terms of the covers, th these things were kind. Of, this was phoned in a little bit. Uh, but in any event, I I'm definitely picking it up. This is a must-have resource for for anyone uh, interested in the DC uh, multiverse moving forward. It it's it's this is a must-buy, whether you whether you like it or not. Quite frankly. Yeah, I'm su I'm surprised that you had so much trouble with it. Like I, I your I think your criticisms are are legitimate, especially you know putting the name Dark Crisis on this when it doesn't have anything to do with Dark Crisis. And I would yeah I would agree with you that you know the idea of bringing the you want to homage Crisis on Infinite Earths. Why why didn't that story like why is Pariah the big bad like that never that didn't make sense to me in the beginning. And oh no, it's the Great Darkness. No, it's Pariah. Like it should have been the anti monitor all along. Yeah. So, so yeah, I I agree with you, but I don't know. I think ultimately, I I enjoyed the Dan Jurgens art so much. Maybe that's why I, this landed a little better for me. And I'm not even a fan of multiversity. So, anyway, let's move on. Superman, Son of Kal El, number eighteen, written by Tom Taylor, pencils by Cian Torme and Ruari Coleman, inks by Torme Coleman and Scott Hanna, colors by Fajardo Jr., letters by uh, Dave Sharp. Uh, this is the book that I was talking about that I got to talk to a creator about recently. So that'll be coming up later this week. Tom Taylor talking about the fact that 
basically John Kent has his Lex Luthor. He has his nemesis. He has his guy that, you know, um, logically or not, can't stand him and wants to see him destroyed, leans into the whole idea, which I feel like is a – it's an idea that that's not wholly original recently, um, but it feels like it's come a little bit more toward the forefront again. This idea that Lex Luthor, the, you know, maybe it's just lip service and really it's his ego and the fact that Superman gets more adulation and Metropolis than him. And before Superman came along, he was, you know, the big man on campus in terms of the, peop- the, the person in Metropolis that people, you know, looked up to. And he was the, the most famous man in Metropolis and all that sort of thing. Superman comes along and he's jealous. It, it, it all comes down to ego. But the lip service he gives is, oh, Superman's dangerous. He's an alien. He's an unknown. I just want to be sure that the people of Metropolis are protected, which, you know, none of us believe that to be actually true. So it's kind of similar. John has his own nemesis here, Red Sin. Um, this character, Luis Rojas, his parents were working for Lex Luthor, working for LexCorp. They apparently um, shared that idea that that these aliens, these Kryptonians on Earth were dangerous, and they were working on a project called Red Sin that had to do with generating red sun radiation to make uh, Kryptonians vulnerable. There was an explosion at LexCorp, and both of Luis Rojas's parents were killed. They weren't able to make the technology work, but apparently their son was a genius, maybe because his parents were scientists, maybe not, whatever. But he goes in and some it's not really explained. He goes in and he takes the technology in his apartment, makes it work, and then uses it to attack. We saw last issue attack um, John Kent and make him vulnerable, make him bleed, uh, make a Kryptonian bleed in the words of Lex Luthor. And so he uses that technology and his genius to attack John Kent in this issue, to attack Clark. Um, and he actually captures Superman, which – I mean, I get it. The kid's a genius and the kid is really smart, but I don't know. You're not – Tom Taylor, you're not putting uh, Kal-El in the best light here, having him basically be defeated by a, a teenager, a teenage supervillain who's only been on the job for a couple of days. But I can kind of set that aside because uh, – and Tom and I talked about this, this. This idea of Red Sin as a nemesis for John Kent is so interesting because they do have so much in common. They are – in some ways, uh, two sides of the same coin. They're about the same age. They've both had trauma in their past. Now, granted, John is fortunate enough to still have his parents around, even though they weren't around for a long time while John was trapped in the volcano. Uh, Luis Rojas's trauma is more permanent, right? His parents were, were killed. They're gone. Um, and so it's almost like he's latching on to their beliefs, this idea that Kryptonians are dangerous and need to be destroyed, killed, because that's what he professes to, to as a goal. He wants to kill John Kent. Um, he, his parents aren't coming back. And so maybe that's the way that he connects with them by, by keeping this idea that Kryptonians are dangerous alive. Um, there's some other technology and some other moments uh, for John Kent. Apparently, he had Brainiac 5 build him kind of a, a fail-safe emergency belt that bathes him in ye- – what looks like yellow light radiation, I guess, or yellow sun radiation uh, when he gets in trouble. So that's cool to see. And he's also <laughs> wearing a bulletproof vest here, which he, Nightwing apparently gave him that advice. Hey, you're about to go fight this guy who can make you vulnerable. You probably should wear a bulletproof vest. And Clark, when he finds out John's wearing this bulletproof vest and it does come in handy, Clark's like, oh, you know, good job on that. But it's like, 
do, did you really need to be convinced by Nightwing? Because just last issue, you weren't wearing a bulletproof vest, got expo- exposed to red sun radiation, and got shot. So I wouldn't think it would take a lot of convincing, you know, whether you're a Kryptonian or not. Getting shot hurts, um, you know, unless you're in your invulnerable state. So um, this is the final issue of um, of Superman, Son of Kal-El. The story of Luis Rojas and Lex Luthor shows up at the end to kind of take on that parental figure. I mean, obviously, he's going to use and manipulate Luis because he just sees him as a, a weapon to point at um, Clark and John. Um, but that whole idea, that whole story, what Luther's planning continues in Action Comics 1050, which DC has been promoting for a long time. Project Blackout is going to supposedly change the trajectory of the Superman stories going forward. And then the story of John Kent will continue in Adventures of Superman, John Kent, which I think Tom said is a five-issue miniseries. And then there's going to be more John Kent. We don't – like based on what happens in that, we're going to get – I don't know if we're going to get – if John's going to be de-aged – Fingers crossed, probably not. Um, but if we're going to get another John Kent series <laughs> yeah. after that, or or it's going to be John Kent in the Legion of Superheroes, like, yeah, just based on the context of how Tom was talking, there is some John Kent series or something else that's coming out of um, the miniseries. So despite what some corners of the internet want you to believe about how sales on this title weren't great, and that's why, um, why DC canceled it and and they're putting Adventures of Superman out. No, that that's none of that is true at all. And I love it. Like I, I watched like two seconds of uh more than two seconds, but this this YouTube video who's ranting and raving about how terrible Superman uh son of Kal-El was and it was just like, like the guy had no evidence to back it up at all other than saying, Yeah, Superman son of Kal-El's ending. That that that's your that's your evidence? Because titles end all the time now, and it's just a way to get a new number one. If, if any, like, don't get me wrong, Adventures of Superman, whatever story is going to be told there, and Adventures of Superman, John Kent could have been told in this. They didn't have to stop. But why wouldn't they when they can get another number one on the stands? That's that's the real reason. That's the real reason. And then that's a limited series. So guess what? The John Kent content that's coming after that, they can get another new number one with fifteen different covers. That's just the reality of the world that we live in now. So you can do whatever you want and say whatever you want about Tom Taylor and you know how you you think his his politics are ruining DC Comics, but that's not actually the case. <laughs> it's actually selling really really well. So you take that for for what you will. Uh, anyway, what do you think about this uh, this ending and this new nemesis for John Kent? I think uh, th- this follows a pattern. It's going to be for at least three com- comics that we review this week. This is the final issue or the, 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 this is the latest issue. In this case, it's the final issue. And I think this is the best issue out of, the, out of all the previous issues. This is actually the best. And I can't help but to notice that Jay Nakamura is not in the issue. And, but that's not the reason why it's the best, though. But I just, I, I just want to well, we all in. know how We and, all know how much you dislike pink hair. Yeah, I, I don't. That's exactly right. I don't like the pink yeah. hair. But uh, I just like how this all came together. And I really like how at the beginning you got the rapport. You got, you, you got the character work between Batman and Superman, John Kent, the Justice League, as they're building the Kent farm. I think that worked very well. And then it actually established, I thought, a very believable character, a believable villain uh, for uh, John Kent. One of the things that's been very weak with this series has been the plot. It's had some strong character moments. It's strength lies in the character moments. The plot lines have been generally very weak. But 
this Louis character actually feels to be an interesting villain because his parents were killed. Uh, his parents are not alive. He's a leg in, in a sense, this new Louis character who now is the genuine em- enemy for John Kent. And I actually liked, I found myself actually, because I've been kind of, I've been angry at John Kent because he's, he's been, he's been screwing up more and maybe it's because I'm an older reader, but I've been, I've been very sort of frustrated with John Kent and, and this thought, because I wanted the plot lines to be more, a little bit, have a little bit more gravitas. And I love the fact that this Louis you know, this is one thing where John Kent can't talk his way out of it. You know, he can't talk his way out of it. But I'm a nice guy. John Kent's going to go to jail and talk some sense into Louis. Oh, it's not your fault, Louis. It's not my fault. Louis, I, I like the fact that Louis said, you know, basically, you don't know what you're talking about. I hate you. You're the problem. You're a problem. You're an alien. You're you're a threat to this planet. Your Your dad's a threat to this planet. You, the Superman family, are a threat to this planet. You're the problem. I'm not the problem. What I did was right. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not crazy. I just don't like you. I think you're evil. Get out. That's kind of what it. I kind of like that. A good old-fashioned villain doesn't want to get reformed. I'm right. You're wrong. And I. That's. this is who I am. This is Louis, ladies and gentlemen. And Lex Luthor, surprise, surprise, can resonate. Finally, Lex says, I can relate to this guy. I like the way Louis thinks. Of course. And of course, Louis starts with L, just like Lex. So, I mean, it's a match made in heaven, of course. And I kind of like the way that plays into there. So I'm getting a little bit of satisfaction out of this because I think John Kent needs to have a more significant rogues gallery that's going to challenge him far more than he's been challenged so far in this series. And so I really like it. Unfortunately, it's ending. And uh, I hope, you know, it'll be interesting to see, we're going to see Louis more going forward, I guess. But just when this title is finally getting more interesting and maybe moving away, uh, I didn't realize just, uh, I really do think that the first, I, I think the I think there was too much focus on John Kent's relationship with Jay Nakamura. Uh, and it could have been anybody that isn't a, that isn't, a, that isn't a slight against the, against the uh, bisexual thing or the nothing like that. I think, I think that there's maybe something to be said about focusing too much on relationship, not enough on plot development. At least that's my take on this because uh, I think, uh, just as a quick aside, I think Tom Taylor does a better job at handling balancing relationships versus interesting plots with Dark Knights of Steel. I think I think he does a really good job there in balancing the plot and the character work, less so here with this particular title. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm up, now I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm almost sad to see this title go because it's finally starting to get interesting to me. But I look forward to Action Comics 1050. Yeah, and I will say in terms of John talking his way out of problems as opposed to fighting, listen to my interview with Tom because he has some interesting things to say about that. <laughs> so I I could say them here, but then what reason would you have to go listen to the interview? So go, check, it, go, check, go check it out. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have International Milk Company. I mean, Wonder Woman 794 <laughs> from uh, Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Uh, Emmanuel Lupacchino on pencils. Wade Von Grobinger on inks. Jordi Blair on colors. Pat Brosso on letters. It does have the backup that's written by uh, Jordi Belair with, uh, I think it's Paulina Ganeshaw on, on colors. I've, I've stopped reading the young Diana. It's, it's just, again, it's so, it doesn't match up in terms of tone with what's going on in, in the main story. So I've, I've stopped reading that. So that being said, I, you know, this is another where things are starting to come together and make a little more sense. I particularly love the characterization of Cheetah. Cheetah might be my favorite character that Clunrad has written in terms of, she's just, 
fun and kind of over the top and bloodthirsty in a way. And I, I like that characterization for Cheetah. Um, and I like her. She's somewhat of an anti-hero fighting alongside Wonder Woman and, and Siegfried here. Um, Diana and her allies are, are discovering that Hera has been behind this plot with the milk all along. It's misogynistic plot. Dr. Psycho wasn't exactly the, the best characterized built uh, DC villain in, uh, in quite a while, but he's kind of off the table now. And the, the true villains, the gods are, are they're exposed as being behind what's going on. So to me, that works. It's classic wonder woman, you know, the, the gods jealousy and, desire to be praised and adulated and what have you that again, it's, it's classic wonder woman stuff. So for me, this works. Um, Yara floor, wonder girl shows up at the end. I will say <laughs> a lot of talk about characterization on this, on this issue. Um, so here's another one, you know, much like ghost maker who Yara floor first introduced, first saw her in future state uh, DC and she, felt a little serious and felt like a serious character throughout the Joel Jones run. And then at some point, I don't know if it was because of the delays with what Joel was doing or something was not working. Her TV show got canceled. One thing probably doesn't have anything to do with the other, uh, but it was in development and that got shelved. Um, and then she only showed up in like trial of the Amazons and some subsequent one shots. But at some point along the line, she stopped being this sort of, like serious character and just became, it's almost like they de-aged her. Now she's yeah. just like this really boisterous, spunky, like teenage wonder girl character. It, it, it's, it seems so strange to me. The last couple of times she's shown up. She just seems to be like, I don't know, re almost reminds me of like Jughead in an Archie comic, you know, where she's just yeah. there and she's loud. And yeah. what is she comedic relief now? Like, I don't, Exactly. I have zero idea who Yara, Yara Floor, like they have, rather than evolve her character, they've de-evolved her, her character. Like what a mess. What a mess. It is. Um, so here you have the regular plot of, of Wonder Woman coming together maybe better than it has in, in quite a while now that we've got the terrible Dr. Psycho off the page. And, you know, I feel like we're getting a serious Diana. Again, I really enjoy the characterization for Cheetah. I thought the art was solid, um, but then just to remind us what a mess Wonder Woman's been for the last, I don't know, six, eight months. Hey, don't forget, we can still throw a, a curveball at you where things just don't make sense. We'll throw Yara Floor in here on the last page. So, yeah, I, to me, I, I don't blame uh, Conrad or Clunan for this. I 100% blame editorial for just grossly mishandling Yara Floor, like, it's, I mean, I, I don't really care about Yara Flores character because I haven't been given any reason to care, but yeah. for anybody out there who's a Yara Flores fan, maybe they're Brazilian or they're from South America or, or for whatever reason, they just really love Yara Flores. I feel bad for you because DC has, again, just grossly mishandled your character. Like it, it's, it's, it's shameful to be, to be honest. Like I hate to be that harsh, but really, really bad. I hope somebody can come along and, and write the ship for Yara Floor because she has potential. Um, but, oh, my God, has it been <laughs> squandered. Worst, worst treatment of character, new character I've, that I can remember ever. Yeah. It's, it's awful. So, anyway, I'm sure, I'm sure you have thoughts. Let's hear them. 
Well, you were probably expecting a rant, and um, I, you know what? I could, I could probably give one. Uh, I'll start off by saying I share your sentiments about uh, about Wonder Girl, and um, it's just unfortunate. But we've ranted enough about Wonder Girl. Uh, this this particular issue, <laughs> it's called Before the Storm, Part One. This is um, again we, we we've joked before about you know, and it's it's right on the covers. They've really gone with the joke. I mean, I've made a mockery out of the vile milk drinkers that, uh, you know, where all the men were drinking all this milk that was making them, apparently turning them, making them all very difficult to get along with. And some of them uh, certainly sounded like they were being very um, male chauvinist and what have you in the, in the, in the lead up to this. Uh, Kale Industries, Veronica Kale, was maybe linked to the, the gods, the, the machinations of, of Hera, in, in creating this milk was to sort of, I don't know, indoctrinate the masses and to, because the gods, fewer people are worshiping the gods and, and Hera has, is, she's up to something in Olympus. And one of the reasons why Hippolyta apparently sacrificed her life was to, and, and to ascend to godhood. Hippolyta was going to ascend to godhood in order to become, uh, become a god and to be, become basically one of the patron goddesses that would protect the Amazons. And of course... Uh, the real reason is because they wanted Nubia to be queen. But I mean, at least now Hippolyta doesn't have a re redundant role. Instead of two queens, make Hippolyta a goddess. Give her something to do. Well, Hippolyta is doing quite a terrible job of it, apparently, because Hera's machinations continue. We got Phoebos and Deimos show up here in a, in, a, in a giant carton of milk in this issue. Um, in this plant that's making all this milk cheetah is is dressed like somebody i'm pretty sure some i think becky clunan decided let's you know let's pretend it's 1985 and uh give cheetah a wardrobe to match she's actually i think cheetah's wearing the old wardrobe that wonder woman used to have in 1992 and uh but in any event i, I actually i got some comical relief out of the uh out of cheetah she, she her smart assness her cockiness was kind of funny Wonder Woman, uh, I mean, the, the, the dialogue here and everything else and Wonder Woman, uh, you know, confronting the gods and, and, then, and then they end up tracing, they end up, they end up tracing the, the source of all their problems to um, some floating city in, I don't know, was it Athens or Greek or something? And they confront Eros. And Eros is there. And Eros, of course, was the one who... Wonder Girl ends up showing up at the end. Remember that Eros and Wonder Girl used to have a thing. Uh, Eros shot her with an arrow and sort of manipulated her emotionally and all this other jazz. And Eros is telling Wonder Woman that, you know, hell, you know Hera has, has got plans and that there's nothing that Wonder Woman can do about it. And it's really Wonder Woman's fault because when Wonder Woman came back from the gods came back when, when Wonder Woman died at the end of Death Metal, she came back and instead of you know, instead of actually protecting the Earth against against that lurking threat, which ultimately ended up being Dark Crisis, <laughs> but she basically went on this quest. Wonder Woman basically ended up just defeating this, uh, defeating uh, the I can't remember the name of the god now. The uh, uh, the the two faced. Janus. Yeah, Janus, Janus, the god Janus. And uh, Janus, of course, had killed all the Greek gods. Wonder Woman goes to the graveyards of the gods, resurrects all the gods, except for the Stark god, except for the chaos. And chaos came back, and that was during Trial of the Amazons. And so everything's linked here. 
But unfortunately, it's just been one big disappointment. It's been kind of blah. The story hasn't been particularly exciting. To be quite honest with you, it's one of those odd situations that arises every now and then when you read it, when you try to explain a comic book story where the comic book story sounds more exciting when I explain it to you than if you actually were to sit down and read it. Uh, that's how I feel about uh, Wonder Woman. It, when I when I try to describe what Wonder Woman's adventure was out of Death Metal to now, it sounds much more exciting in the in the telling than it is if you actually read the adventures. And and but in any event, I will say though that this is actually a little less. <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> is it still is, this is still a comic, or I just shake my head. I. I but I mean, it's at least it's entertain. There's a parody factor to it. I find myself laughing at it. I find it absurd. I, I, it's so disappointing to see Wonder Girl played off like a joke. She's she's written now like some sort of immature New York New Yorker who's like fourteen or fifteen years old. And and that's is that really how you wanted to portray her? I guess that's what I guess they did. She's from originally from what is it New Orleans and and I, but it, like you said. Who the hell is Wonder Girl? Why don't they focus or give her a series? And and really, I have to say, why is she showing up here? Other than Eros is here, I think it's because they feel sorry because she doesn't have a she doesn't have a she doesn't have a comic book of her own because nobody can editorial doesn't know what they're doing. But the whole thing just still seems like a convoluted mess. And once again, they still haven't learned they're they're, they're jam packing young Diana in the backup of this feature. Which uh, why I, I don't know. But in any event, this is, um, you know, uh, I actually will buy the cover. I like the milk carton. You know, I think Wonder Woman should go missing for a while because I, I don't know if anybody would miss her, to be honest with you, when she's written like this. But, hey, that's me being harsh. But my rant is over. Yeah, she was she was missing for a while. But unfortunately, we <laughs> we instead of staying on Earth and reading stories about everybody that was left behind when she was missing, we followed her through the mythological realm. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, Batgirls number 19, also written by Clunan and Conrad, Jonathan Case on art, colors, and letters, uh, believe it or not, which gives us a very different look and feel than any issue of Batgirls that we've had so far. Um, it's continuing this, the Freaky Friday story of Cassandra and Stephanie Brown that started in the recent Batgirls annual where they, they've switched bodies we saw at the end of that annual that Steph, that Cassandra Kane in the body of Stephanie Brown was kidnapped. Can you be kidnapped by your own father? I guess so, right? Um, kidnapped by her father, the Clue Master. Meanwhile, Stephanie Brown in the body of Cassandra Kane is about to sit down uh, to dinner with her mother, Lady Shiva. So how that's all going to play out? Yeah, well, you're going to find out in this issue. So I will say about this issue what I said about the annual. We finally don't have art that's sort of juvenile, you know, whether or not that was the intention of the art when Jorge Corona was on the book, he put all the ink splatter to try to, I don't know, mature it up. That doesn't really work. It never worked for me. I thought it was terrible. Commented on it all the time, how much I didn't like it. Neil Gouge art also sort of more all ages and not, not really serious, but yet they were sort of dealing with serious subject matter. And we talked about it all the time, how the aesthetic just fell off. And I mentioned in reading that annual how finally it felt like the story and the tone of the narrative was matching visually, and that continues here. That being said, what I'm realizing is, I don't know, I guess I'm just not that interested in Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Cain. Uh, more, more interested in Cassandra than Stephanie, but man, I really could just take Stephanie and kind of 
put her to the side. We also get a little bit of Barbara Gordon interacting with Bruce here. They go to see Zatanna. Um, Barbara's investigating that coin that uh, Cassandra and Stephanie found in the, the house uh, in the neighborhood of uh, that um, Maps lives in. So, and, and bodies that were found there and what's going on. So multiple plot lines. And I think in terms of pacing, it's well done and everything has its, uh, its chance to shine. Um, what's interesting is it, it's not like this style of art would be my favorite style. It's certainly closer to a DC house style than we've had previously on this book, like I mentioned. Um, but it's still not art that I would necessarily associate with a Batman family comic. So um, main cover, I, I I can't even tell what it is. I mean, I guess it's Cassandra and, <laughs> and Stephanie superimposed over each other, but it just like the way they did it, it got, it just looks really, really bad. The Dan Mora cover by far and away the best one with um, I'm assuming that's Dick Grayson as Robin and then Barbara Gordon. That's a, that's a gorgeous classic cover. And then the other one, I think it's by probably peach Momoko. Let me look. Nope, it's by Ryan Gonzalez. Um, manga style doesn't really do it for me. But anyway, um, yeah, I thought this was okay. Um, I'll be curious to see if, if this title continues um, when Dawn of DC happens. I guess we'll see. What are your thoughts? Well, this is another title where issue 13, this is, other than the cover, which I, the cover A, which is absolutely, this is, I mean, it's just awful. I mean, I don't know what happened, but I, I'm going to say I like the issue. I, this is my, this is the best issue since issue one by far. Uh, I'll say some other nice things about Clune Red that I, I think that the early issues of Bad Girls was too tied up and linked editorially to the, the bad event and the, 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 the nonsense of what was it, the magistrate and all that other, the, the, the Joker follow the joke or and all that that crap or whatever it was anyways we you and i have said from the beginning that if it's batgirls you, you have cassandra kane you've got stephanie brown you you have to have a lady shiva and clue master storyline this cries out this is the this is one of the primary things that these girls have in common so we we have to see that finally we're getting that and you know you know i'm a huge lady shiva i'm a huge fan of the original run of, with with cassandra kane her 73 issue run, which ended with her classic battle with her mother, where, where she actually ends up, it was a question, did she kill her own mother, Lady Shiva or not? And Lady Shiva had a death wish. And and here, this relationship is played out. And and I want to give Red some credit here, because when I first started reading this, I thought to myself, if Lady Shiva does not know immediately within seconds that Cassandra Kane is not actually her daughter, then... I, then Clune Rats don't understand Lady Shiva because Lady Shiva knows exactly how her daughter moves. Lady Shiva is an expert at knowing body language. And to the credit of Clunrad, Lady Shiva wasn't fooled. She knew that even though this person physically was her daughter, she knew that it wasn't really her daughter. She knew that. And she didn't even say how she knew that, but we Lady Shiva fans know exactly how Lady Shiva knows that because Stephanie Crane doesn't walk the same. If Stephanie Crane is possessing the body of Cassandra Kane, she's going to walk different. 
She's going to have different uh, facial expressions. She's going to have different movements. There's going to be subtleties in movement and quirks of speech that Lady Shiva is going to instantly know about. And that's exactly what happened here. So kudos for Kloonrad for picking up on that. I actually appreciated that. Uh, If if I want to nitpick a little bit more, uh, I can say that I I thought that the, the battle between uh, Stephanie Stephanie Brown in the body of Cassandra, the battle between her and Lady Shiva, I think lasted too long. But Lady Shiva got did actually, you know, finally get one up on Stephanie Brown. I, I still think the explanation as to why that battle lasted longer than it did was a little wonky. Stephanie Brown saying that, well, you know, I... I just acted with chaos. Lady Shiva's really good at reading body language, but I, if you, if you, as long as you act real crazy when you're fighting and you just and you're total chaos when you're threatening, you're pulling the curtains down, you're breaking the windows, you're gonna throw Lady Shiva off her game. No, you won't. But again, I'm nitpicking. Uh, but but hey, guess what? Cassandra, you know, Lady Shiva won, and she's she's she ends up telling Stephanie Brown, "Tell tell my daughter, I'm proud of her." And there, there was some moments here, despite the fact that I'm not a fan of the Freaky Friday aspect of it. I, it was, I found it that it, it, in a crazy way, I actually think it kind of worked. It's worked better than any issue that they've written so far. I actually like it. I like Cassandra. I, I like Lady Shiva's interaction with Stephanie Brown. Stephanie Brown saying, "Why don't you tell that to your daughter yourself?" Well, of course she can't. She's got her reasons. Meanwhile, Clue Master is having his is. We, we don't we. Less is revealed between Clue, Clue Master, who's got a slit throat. He's, he he seems curiously like he's recently been resurrected, or or he he I don't know. He almost seems like he's he's still got like the the his slit throat from when he was killed, and um, and he's he's kidnapped uh, Stephanie. He doesn't know that Stephanie Brown is actually cast. But before the issue ends, uh, Madam Zodiac, who Batman, Batgirl, uh, Barbara Gordon, and Zatanna managed to undo the the Freaky Friday uh, mind swaps, and I just want to. And finally, I just want to say something about Jonathan Case's art. There are moments here in his art where I where I get just a tweak of a Darwin Cook style of art. Just moments where he's got a little bit of some Darwin Cook style when he draws. There's a there's a page here where he introduces Zatanna. It's almost that he shows Zatanna's face where she smile, has a half smile. It was reminiscent to me of a little bit of a Darwin Cook's style and, and yet very jarringly different in other pages. So it's a little bit wonky. His style is, uh, I, I thought if I didn't know better, I mean, it, it was very different. Not every, there wasn't a lot of consistency, but it had moments where it really sort of, uh, I thought it was, wow, that's a great page. And then subsequent pages weren't as good, but I'm, I'm curious. I whenever I see the name Jonathan Case now, because I'm a huge Darwin Cook fan, when I see just hints of a Darwin Cook style, even subtle in my mind, it, it piques me to that to that uh, artist. So, all in all, I've got some hope for this title. I'd like to see where it is going moving forward, and I'm really curious because Lady Shiva feels like she's directionless right now. Lady Shiva is looking for a purpose in her life, but and I think and because. She was trying to get she was trying to get Cassandra to maybe join her and lead the League of Assassins, but without that, what's left? Cassandra doesn't want to do that. Cass, Cass, Cassandra Kane doesn't want to do that with it. She's got her own goals. She's got her own way of doing things. She's not her mother. So what? Where does that leave Lady Shiva? Lady Shiva is still a character. Remains a character that is without a purpose right now, and that's. And and I think within the DC universe, there's a lot of potential for Lady Shiva moving forward. What are they going to do with her? Uh, so in any event, 
I'm just glad that no damage was done to the character of Lady Shiva. That was my concern. <laughs> and so I'm actually reasonably pleased enough with this issue. Yeah, again, I think it just goes to having a more mature art style. It just works for this title. Yeah, uh, just, for sure. I mean, I, again, not that anybody over at DC is trying to do a bad job, but man, they really could. Maybe it's just th their editors skew toward younger. They, you know, all the cost cutting AT&T forced them to do, you know, you're going to get rid of the people that make the most money. And so all the editors left are very inexperienced. So hopefully their learning on the job will lead to better decisions further on down the line. So, uh, all right. Last book we're going to talk about Danger Street. Number one, this is from writer Tom King. Jorge Fornes is the artist. Dave Stewart on colors. If you're not familiar with a, a, a series back in the day, late 70s DC called First Issue Special, it was a lot of the books that were planned before the DC implosion in the early to mid 70s when due to recession and whatnot, DC greatly reduced the monthly output they were putting out and they had a bunch of titles that were scheduled to launch. They got canceled. Um, Dingbats of Danger Street, Lady Cop, all these sort of things. They, they eventually, since they had the issues, they had the work already done, they eventually launched a series called First Issue Special, where it was just a series of first issues of a, what would have been comic runs, some of them ending on cliffhangers, just you know plots that didn't go anywhere because they're literally only one issue. Um, and that's, you know, leave it to Tom King. Not sure why he decided to do this, but he's taking a lot of those characters um, and crafting a story around them. So we've got Creeper, we've got Lady Cop, we've got the Dingbats of Danger Street, we've got Warlord, we've got uh, a version of Starman and Metamorpho, and they're they're all showing up here in a, a story about Doctor Fate's helmet and Darkseid's involved somehow. Uh, it's not completely clear what exactly is going on. Um, I will say that the narrative in terms of chronologically does seem to move forward pretty straightforward from A to B to C to D. Um, it does jump around between these various characters that are introduced. Uh, we also have somebody who's narrating. We're not exactly sure, sure who that is. I sort of think maybe it's a version of Dr. Fate, but not 100% on that. The Jorge Fornes art, you know, if you... Uh, read the Rorschach title from Tom King. You'll be familiar with this artist. He's got a style that's very grounded, I'll say, very crime noir for the most part. The, 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 his best work in my mind has been his non-superhero stuff, and the argument could be made that Ror the Rorschach title was non-superhero. Uh, he also did a series over at Aftershock called um, Hot Lunch Special uh, that I thought was really good with um, Elliot Rahal. Uh He's done some Batman stuff. I don't enjoy that as much. And then this this is going even farther. You know, we actually have people with superpowers here, so it's an interesting choice to see um, to see uh, Jorge draw. You know, Metamorpho or Doctor Fate or that kind of thing. And we're talking really cosmic, traditional superhero type stuff. So we'll see how that all plays out. But yeah, based on this first issue, really strong storytelling, especially visually, because uh, Fornes is a fantastic visual storyteller. Um, but where this is going, what it, what's the point of it, what Tom King is, is out to do, yeah, remains to be seen. But uh, I like this idea, and it sort of continues on I don't know that with one. the um, 
the version of Dr. Fate that we had in the Black Adam movie and that we've seen more recently in, in DC Comics where they've really elevated the character into something that, that you know, he's just so powerful uh, that even his helmet is, you know, an artifact of power. I like I like that with Dr. Fate as opposed to just back in the day, he was just a member of the – just one more member of the All-Star Squadron uh, that could, like, cast spells or whatever. Um, he's really been elevated in, uh, in recent time, and I, I do enjoy that. So – uh, again, not sure where this is headed, but certainly interesting. And if you want to read about some obscure characters you've probably never heard of, then this is the book for you. What did you think? I, I actually enjoyed this. It's I think it's a it's an interesting setup with characters that are not traditionally thought of as particularly interesting, quite frankly. And I say that with apologies to Warlord, who I got I, I still love my Warlord Warlord run, which I which I love. And I, I got my I, I've loved Metamorpho since the out with Batman and the Outsiders. But uh in any event, I I think this has a lot of potential. I'm curious as to where it's going. I mean the setup here is is actually it's a little bit on the it's almost a little bit silly on it, it involves Warlord Metamorpho and Starman basically wanting to they they manage to get a hold of Dr. Fate's helmet and they want to call forth they know where Darkseid is and they want to use the helmet to call forth that's Darkseid, capture Darkseid, and then turn him into the Justice League, hoping that that the Justice League will be so impressive they'll be able to join the Justice League. So that's the big master that's that's the central plan here. Unfortunately, something goes catastrophically wrong because when they when they attempt to do that, instead of Darkseid coming through, what they what they what they end up discovering is they end up that this character named Atlas is what comes through this portal that they create with that they open up with Doc, with Doctor Fate's helmet, and uh, and this uh, this Atlas character keeps saying the same thing: the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Well, out of a sense of panic, Warlord actually ends up killing Atlas, stabs him through the heart. Meanwhile. Uh, there's these kids that are quadding in the desert where this is taking place, totally coincidentally. And these kids, these are the Dingbat kids. And these Dingbat kids live on Danger Street, hence the name of this series, Danger Street. And so, and uh, they, these Dingbats of Danger Street, which are classic characters, the same street where Lady Cop, this Lady Cop, befriended these kids and basically uh, gave them uh, decided not to give them a ticket earlier in the issue because they were trying to drive their quad out of the city. Well, it's a $200 fine to do that. And, and so she just says, ah, just make sure, just be gone when I get back. Take your quad out to the desert. You don't get a fine if you're driving it out uh, in the countryside or whatever the desert, but just get out of here. So they go. And of course, unfortunately, this kid comes, uh, these dingbat kids, one of the kids named named Good Looks is his nickname. He ends up getting abandoned by his friends because they they go quadding and they come back for him, but not before he startles Starman after Atlas is killed by Warlord. Uh, this kid is shocked by it and says, "Hey, what's going on?" And then Starman panics, turns around, and just instinctively shoots his star bolt and ends up killing this kid. And so now Lady Cop next issue is going to be investigating a murder of what happened to this kid. And so it's an interesting story. Meanwhile, we got the Manhunter, Mark Shaw, the Manhunter. <laughs> yes, that Mark Shaw, I think, but I don't think it's Leviathan connected. Leviathan Yeah, Leviathan, exactly. Mark Shaw, as I always used to say, who? Leviathan, Mark Shaw, who? Anyways, but this is actually, he's using Mark Shaw because Mark Shaw was the 
Manhunter that was in the first edition, first issue special anthologies back in the 70s. And if you're wondering why Tom King did that is that th- these first issue special anthologies back in the day, they were actually kind of big deals back then because Joe Simon worked on Manhunter, Jack Kirby on, on Atlas and the Dingbats, Steve Ditko worked on The Creeper. So really big name stars had worked with these characters, but only gave eight page stories to each of them. And a lot of these characters have been largely forgotten about in DC lore. And Jack Ryder also has a, a role in this particular story. He 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 ends up essentially losing his job and applying for a job uh, by being an announcer. And he actually applies for a job and he meets with the green team who are basically teenage billionaires. And they have their own machinations involved in this story. And so how Tom King is going to weave this tale, I mean, you and I both know how he his collaboration with the artist Fornes on, on Rorschach, you know, it, if you stick with the tale, we were rewarded with a very good story at the end of that. And I'm confident we are with this as well. I enjoyed reading this. I'm, I, I enjoy the, uh, I enjoy getting into his characterizations of this issues. Cause one thing about Tom King and that I tell everybody, cause you no longer have the excuse of saying, why does Tom King write the character that way? Look, this is Tom King's story. And, and if you, this is Tom King, you know him enough by now that this is his characters are the way that he wants to write him. Just go with the story. If you can't do that, then, then that's okay, but you probably don't want to pick up the issue then, okay? If if you have a very particular iteration of Starman you love or Metamorpho that you like or Dr. Fate that you like or if you've got a preconception of what Atlas is supposed to be, maybe you don't want to read this if you're just going to use it to, uh, you know, create more fodder for your Tom King uh, detraction party. But in any event, I've, I've enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to see where this is going to go uh, because I think he's clearly building something. And my favorite character is Lady Cop. I'm curious to know who's who's your favorite character in this issue. Well, I've always been a Creeper fan since back in the day, and yeah, interesting that King's taking Jack Ryder, you know, Creeper's alternate identity, and kind of making him a right wing fringe nut. So uh, that's yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, there are some that would say anybody that goes to that degree is insane. Creeper's always been you know on the fringe, you know, as a, as a character. So maybe now writers more closely aligned to who the creeper is. I, I guess we'll see. Yes. Anyway, that does it for the, the single issues. There is also an issue of Batman and Scooby-Doo mysteries. Issue number three is out this week as well. And then as far as collections go, there are uh, a number of those out this week as well. We've got uh, flashpoint beyond trade paperback. Highly recommend that from Jeff Johns, Jeremy Adams and Tim Sheridan, along with art by Zermonico. Uh, the Starman Compendium 2 trade paperback is out. Who's Who Omnibus Volume 2 hardcover, which I, th- I think I pre-ordered. Those things are huge and they're fantastic. If you love the Who's Who back in the 80s and 90s, yeah, I'd recommend that. And then something that I, I probably don't recommend but ended up sort of making sense in the end is Justice League versus Legion Superheroes from Brian Michael Bendis. If you're a Bendis fan, I suppose pick it up. You'd probably enjoy it. Um, it was problematic. Uh, it wasn't wasn't the best story, wasn't the most compelling, but it did make sense in the end. It's the best thing I can say about it. So, uh, and yeah, that does it. What, uh, what about your book of the week, Rocky? Uh, well, my pick of the week, I will have to, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with danger street straight up. I'm going to danger street. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Nothing really stood out head and shoulders above the rest for me. So I think in terms of what might, what I might go back and look at the most in the future would probably be that 
Dark Crisis Big Bang, just as a, a reference. Um, and I, I did enjoy the Dan Jurgens art, you know, was uh, reminiscent of 90s, 90s superhero, uh, 90s Superman art. So uh, I'll give I'll give my nod to, to Dark Crisis. So uh, and yeah, the 12 Days of the Comic Store is coming up, as I mentioned earlier, tons of interviews and um, guests and reviews and all that sort of stuff. So uh, be sure you're tuning in for all that. You got anything coming up? Uh, that you want to plug, Rocky? Anything to tease uh, well, the listeners with? <laughs> I am behind on reviewing my uh, Frank Miller Ronin book two, issue one. So I'll be reviewing that. And um, I think uh, I, I think that's all I'm going to say right now. I've, I've got a, I'm behind on my Christmas shopping and everything else, so I don't want to I don't want to make any promises that I that I that I can't stick to. But uh, but. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'll just yeah. I'll just say Ronan book too. But uh, I, you've got some interviews that I'm 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 obviously behind on. I always listen to your interviews, but I'm I'm behind. I have to admit, I got sounds like I got some catching up to do. So, well, a lot of them haven't been released yet. I got them in the can. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, the uh, Twelve Days of Comic Store starts on the fourteenth. So this Wednesday tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day that it's released. Uh, but yeah, I've talked to I've talked to Tom King. I've talked to Josh Kasara. Um, Stephanie Phillips, um, Jeremy Adams, God, who else? Uh, Joshua Dysart. So yeah, there's quite a few, quite a few, uh, conversations on, on comics coming up. So I encourage everybody to, to check it out. So with that being said, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Don't forget if you're listening on the audio only head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel. So you don't miss out on our weekly DC spotlights and you can check out the art as we're talking about the books. You can also see all the other uh, content Rocky puts out. Uh, independent reviews on Sundays and uh, individual issue reviews. So ring the notification bell, subscribe, so you don't miss any content, leave some comments, like this video. You guys know what to do. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube, stumbled across it, and you want to be sure not to miss out on any of the great 12 Days of the Comic Source content or other audio-only content on the Comic Source, just go to wherever you get your podcast and do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode. Merry Christmas, happy holidays to everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. Yes, we shall see you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.